founders. Welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to today's podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Eric Grinley, founder and CEO of Esquire Advertising. From attorney to marketing, Eric made the switch, and it all started when he worked as a general counsel to an internet marketing company. Leaving the attorney world in 2012 and with the idea to fraud-free advertising, so began Eric's journey to marketing and the founding of Esquire Advertising. Esquire is an ad tech company with a full-service in-house advertising and marketing agency pushing the limits of advertising performance. Continually focusing on delivering real, actionable return on investment for their clients, using unique combinations of marketing strategies and proprietary technologies to pinpoint in-market consumers using mobile and interconnected, internet-connected device matching technology. With this amazing strategy, Esquire Media took off, earning itself the name of the third fastest growing company in the state of North Carolina, as well as the sixth fastest growing company in marketing and advertising in the entire United States. To tell us all about his journey and Esquire Media, here today is Eric. So Eric, my new friend, let's get to it. Thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So we heard a little bit of our understanding of your journey, but in your own words, how did this company get started? Um, you know, like we've pivoted a lot over the last, you know, probably 10 years or so, right? Like we started in 2012. Um, at the time, we were really sort of looking at it from just like us doing our own marketing online for, for companies, right? We were really just trying to sell products direct to consumers um, and doing that for a few years. And we got really heavily into, you know, email marketing and Facebook marketing and all these different things. Um, and then, you know, fraud really started to become rampant, um, like 2014. I mean, it's not like it didn't exist before then, but it just got really bad. Um, and it became a point where, you know, we're spending our own money on behalf of these companies and, you know, you're trying to be profitable on a media buy, uh, and there'll be so much fraud that you couldn't be profitable, or you'd have one really great day where you'd make profit. And then the next day you'd get crushed because you get a stream of bad traffic. And so, uh, we really started like thinking about the idea of, you know, how would you get, you know, fraud free advertising? How could you eliminate out all these things? And that sort of started the, the idea engine, if you would, um, you know, of, of different technologies that were out there that we could potentially use. And then, you know, over the years that just ended up morphing into us basically realizing that the only way that we could do it was to build something ourselves because there was no one solution that, that really encompassed everything. And at the end of the day, the, the whole point for us, at least, is just to understand who's on the other end of an advertisement. If you understand, you know, who you're serving to, um, then you can basically eliminate out fake accounts, bots, you know, all that other stuff. Um, and when you do that, you're able to like really zone in on, you know, the real true traffic, real eyes on real ads at all times um, and, and get a better ROI. And, and, and that was really what kind of spawned our, our entire being, if you would. And now we've done a lot more, right? We started really investing heavily into our tech stack and, um, you know, we do a lot from like, we have a market analytics platform. Now we have tons of stuff. So like we grew from like this, you know, sort of you know, idea, like I was a one man show in my basement, you know what I mean? Like working 24 hours a day, basically never, never eating, never sleeping, never doing anything other than working. Um, and now, you know, we have, you know, a, a team of people around the United States, uh, you know, um, and uh, it's just, it's, it's 
grown beyond like my wildest expectations for sure. Well, I want to come back to the the transition from a one man show to starting to have a team for the first yeah. But before that, just help me understand the problem a little more because I'm not, you know, very versed in the advertising space myself. So sure. What what did what does the fraud look like, and how was that costing? You a lot um. So the, there's there's a couple of ways that you can look at it. You know, like let's say that you go and you buy traffic on Yahoo.com, right? Um, and uh, uh, you know, and this goes for anybody. It's not Yahoo. It could be any website. Um, there's just a stream of traffic that hits those sites. That's not real traffic. It's bots. It's crawlers. It's you know, uh, there's there's just so much stuff out there that people have built, um, not necessarily with the intention of creating fraud, but sometimes it results in that, right? And so it doesn't matter if a computer system views an ad or a real person views an ad, you get charged for that ad view. And, you know, the, the, the places that you're buying traffic out there are not incentivized to remove that fraud traffic. Now, they've gotten better at it over the last, you know, I'd say five years, um, because some of the different sites have been hit with, you know, class action lawsuits and other things. And so they've done some things to try and correct it. But, you know, back in 2014, if you went to, you know, anybody and said, hey, look, you know, the portion of my traffic is fraud, we can see clearly that this is coming from a server, you know, out of the, you know, the Philippines, it wasn't even the location that we were looking to get or whatever. Um, and they would just tell you, like, sorry, there's nothing we can do for you. And it didn't matter how much money you spent, like you could have spent $7 million in that quarter. And, you know, uh, 2 million of the, the traffic was real and 5 million of it was fake. They did not care. They didn't do anything. And so, you know, a lot of marketers that were out there in the space, um, you know, you would, you could still find a way to be profitable, even with that amount of fraud. And so people didn't really start complaining about it. Um, until it got to the point where it became so rampant that it almost became impossible to be profitable on a media buy. And, you know, like this is that, that, that kind of transpired into then social accounts where, you know, there's fraud reports that are given every year by a couple of companies in the space. And I, now I'm not gonna be able to remember them off the top of my head, but, you know, they published a report not too long ago that said basically, you know, 50% of new social logins online are basically fake, right? So for every, you know, um, uh, two accounts that are created online for a social media platform, half of them were fake. And there's reasons for that. Obviously, some people are creating fake accounts. So that way, then they can, you know, sell followers, they do all these sorts of things, right? But then you have to make those accounts look real in order for them to be um, to stay alive. And so you have all these sort of like fraudulent businesses out there that are then creating all of these problems on these social um, sites to buy traffic. When you have uh, that mass amount of fake accounts, then you, you know, you're really um, degrading the value of the traffic. So uh, if you can find your way through the sea of all the fake accounts and just get to the real ones, you're going to be immensely more profitable than the person next to you. And so, you know, with us, for example, we deal a lot with small, small businesses, um, you know, across the United States, uh, predominantly in the retail sector. And, you know, when you're talking to, you know, Joe's mom and pop shop in, you know, uh, Jasper, Alabama, and they're spending, you know, let's say even, you know, 2000 or $3,000 a month on marketing and advertising that's a lot of money to that individual store. That could be the amount that they spend on their entire rent for the month. Um, so if they're going out and spending that and you know, 60% of what they're spending is going towards fraud, uh, they're just wasting a lot of money and they're not getting the value for the return. And so you know, if we can come in there and we can flip that around and we can ensure that every single dollar that they spent gets spent on a real person with real eyes, um, you know, uh, real true interaction and conversion and all of that, 
we're immensely more profitable for them, but you know, we're also helping to support and save their business and allow them to grow. And so for a long time, um, you know, uh, there's, there's, there's been this sort of understanding of small businesses throughout the United States where they kind of looked at digital as like being like this black hole. Like I dump money into it. I don't know what I'm going to get back for it. I don't know if it's working, you know, and, you know, look, there's an old adage in advertising in general, which is, you know, we know 50% of our marketing is working. We just don't know which half kind of thing. And, you know, so uh, for us, it was about giving people the ability to know exactly which half was working. And we actually matched down um, every, uh, every digital campaign that we run back to like, especially for our retail uh, clients um, or uh, down to their individual in-store sales, right? So we're matching it up every month. So we know, hey, look, you know, this person interacted on an ad, you know, uh, this person actually came in and purchased, you know, so they're actually matches up and see that it's working. So we were solving a couple of things at once. One was, you know, eliminate fraud. The second was show them proof, you know, that, that the thing that they're trying to do is actually working. I love that. So the problem is clear. And I guess my question would be, if you're an entrepreneur listening to this, you know, the basic framework I think of any business is you're solving a problem, right? So we're on the lookouts for which problems are we solving? You made a decision to solve this problem yourself versus finding maybe someone who was solving this problem and integrating it into what you were doing yeah. with your primary problem of marketing. So how did you think about, or what was the deciding factor that we're going to go create this solution to the problem ourselves versus outsourcing that? Um, so we tried to use uh, services that were out there already that, you know, we thought were, were trying to do what we wanted to do, right? And as you start digging into it, you start using it, you just realize that there's a lot of um, limitations to it. So every, everything was limited, like, oh, you could only do this on display ads, or you could only do this in native ads, you know. And for us, we knew that, you know, the, 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 bigger, um, uh, the bigger push or uh, the better value would be if we could really make it happen in, in, in social. And so, you know, there was nobody that we could find that had anything like that. We would have gladly taken somebody else's tool and just used it rather than having to spend millions of dollars to create our own stuff. Right. Like, um, uh, it would have been a lot easier for us as a, as a company. Um, you know, we would have been a lot faster to, you know, to, to, to get where we are. Um, but it just didn't exist. And so we just started building and like, now there's, you know, look, there's, there's a lot of tools out there in the market. There's a lot of changes that are happening in marketing and advertising and, I think quite honestly, if you're not sort of building for yourself and for your own customers, you're falling behind. Like we, we know what's coming, what's looking like it's going to come on the horizon. We know what's working, what's not. And we're constantly inventing and, and, and sort of pushing the envelope to even see what we can do. And, you know, it's not all possible, right? Like I sit in the, I'll sit with um, my team and like talk about ideas and people will say, well, I don't think that that's possible. It's like, okay, well, it might not be yet, but let's go see if it, you know, could be, you know, like we just, you know, you just have to kind of sometimes just kind of go with it and run with it. I love that. I want to switch gears just a little bit, but staying kind of in the early nascent stages of this business, what do you attribute your ability to, you know, get out of that early trap where most businesses die in those first few years? When it's just you and it's just that initial idea or maybe that just small, that just a small team and you actually made this past that two-year window or whatever mm -hmm. when those businesses go to die. When you look back, what do you think were some of the keys that got you guys uh, out of that? Um, I think the first one is that we were really slow um, to hire, right? And, you know, you could ask probably the first, you know, 10 employees of our company 
and they would probably, you know, want to break something, you know what I mean? Over like the, the amount of like what we had to go through, because we, I really took the approach of like, look, if you're not maxed out, um, then I'm not going to hire the next person. Right. Because we had to be really careful about, you know, we didn't, we didn't take on any outside funding, right? Like this was all self-funded. Um, we were profitable within the first, uh, like two months of us starting the company right now, we weren't immensely profitable. Right. But like, you have to remember at the beginning when it was first started, it was just me. So it was like, you know, I didn't really have any overhead. Um, then, you know, uh, once I hired like the, our first employee, which was Brian Dixon, um, you know, it was like, okay, this, this took a little bit of work off my plate. So I'm no longer doing all of these functions myself. I have this extra person. Then it was like, okay, well, what's the next person that would remove more work from me. So that way then I would have more room to then spend on like generating more new business. And so then I hired that person. And I always looked at like those first 10 hires as being like, how do you make my life easier? So that way then I could focus on generating more sales. Because ultimately, the only thing that matters is the new businesses. Is the telephone ringing? Are the emails coming in? You know, like, are people interested in what you're doing? And if you can't generate more business and new business every single day, then you're probably going to fail. Um, but you can't do that and still, con like, like for us, it was like, hey, you're gr growing a, a client load, right? So then my day was taken managing those clients and talking to those clients and managing those relationships. Well, at the same time, I still need to be generating more clients. Well, I can't do both those things simultaneously nonstop all day long. And so being really slow and methodical with how you hire was probably the best decision we made. I was also, um, you know, that continued and still continues to this day, like um, where we're really specific about hiring the right person, um, you know, not just rushing to hire. We've been late a couple of times, like we were wrong. Um, this past fall, where we saw a massive influx of business that we were not expecting. And we got overloaded where we had to then, you know, hey, we have these people in the pipeline, let's get them on and hired and go move really quickly. But typically for us, we're able to like manage that out and balance it out. Um, but I would say hire slow, make sure you watch your finances very closely. Um, you have to be willing to put in the work too. just like you have to you have to live and breathe it. Like, I mean, you know, I would say for the first, from when we first started this like sort of venture of it, because like our company started in 2012, we didn't really start pushing this thing until 2016. And 2016, um, you know, from 2016 to probably right before COVID shut everything down, you know, I was traveling, you know, two, two to three weeks a month constantly out there trying to generate new business, talking to every, every person, anybody I could get in front of. If you had a, a speaking opportunity somewhere in the United States and I could get on it, I would jump on it because I looked at it as an opportunity to, to tell my story, tell what we do and get in front of the next potential consumer. And even if they were not necessarily our customer, well, maybe they knew somebody that was going to be our customer. And that drive, that sort of, you know, nonstop, um, you know, uh, go is what you have to have in order to survive and break through. If you don't do that, if you're not willing to do that, you'll never make it. Mm. So when it was just you, is it fair to say your primary focus, what you saw as most important was getting out there and getting in front of customers and increasing brand awareness, that kind of thing? Sales. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was sales hundred percent. Like, you know, the first thing that I tried was um, you know, like I did, I sent out some like cold emails to, to some people and I actually started when we first started doing this, I actually started by talking to attorneys because I was a former attorney. So I was like, well, I know what they'll want to talk about and I can speak their lingo. You know what I mean? And like, I've been in their shoes. And so I sent out some cold emails to some attorneys and 
uh, got a couple of them to reply back. And I was like, Hey, let's jump on a call, sold the first, first person. And then after that, I was like, okay, if I can sell, you know, uh, one person a day, you know, five days a week, then like, I know I can get to, you know, X, you know, and then if I can, you know, increase it here. And I, and so it was just about getting the pipeline. Then once I had that sort of, you know, book built up, then it was like, okay, now let's look at like, what, what's actually the, the industries we should be targeting, not just the ones that are easy for us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the traps I see that I, I myself can fall into is the subtle belief that if the product is good enough. The business will just show up and we, yeah, like, I don't... we get product focused Yeah, we are like falling in love with tweaking it and just thinking like this thing should have a gravity of its own. But the reality is people don't know about it. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, and I, you know, I mentioned this to you, um, you know, we were talking before, but I, I fully believe this. And I think anybody that's an entrepreneur and has started a, a, a company of any sort, if, if they don't feel the paranoia that the business is going to stop tomorrow, then either one, they're not working hard enough or they're not worried enough. Because, um, you know, if you've ever been a part of a, a business that has failed, um, you know, like that feeling of failure to me, especially when you're starting a business, is probably the worst thing that anybody can endure. Right. Um, and so, you know, if you've ever felt that feeling or been associated with a startup that's gone through some of those things, and I have, you know, um, when you start a new company, you should live in a constant state of paranoia that the business is not going to come tomorrow, that the telephone is not going to ring, that the emails are not going to come. And that should be driving you to get out there and, and talk and email and call and, you know, attend everything and anything you can, um, because the business is not guaranteed tomorrow. Just because you have a client today, whatever business that you're in, doesn't mean that they'll be your client tomorrow. You know, um, they could, they could shut off their business. They could turn off their accounts. I mean, I think everybody kind of got a wash of that feeling when COVID shut everything down. I know for us, you know, we had over 95% of our business pause, like when everything shut down, you know, we are, uh, an advertising and, and marketing company. Nobody needed really to advertise and market, you know, especially not our clients, right? Their stores and, and the things that they did were shut down. So they were like, Hey, I need to save money. Stop doing this. Um, and I live every day, like tomorrow is going to be just like that day. Um, you know, we were fortunate because we have been very um, cautious with our burn rates and all of that in order to know where we need to be from a growth perspective, where we need to be um, from a spend perspective in order to ensure that, you know, we don't get into a situation where, you know, we don't have enough money to like make our way through. We were able to make it through the entire shutdown period, come out the other side stronger. We spent the time basically you know, almost doing like a spring cleaning. We, we worked on all the technology and stuff that we had, you know, not gotten a chance to get to. Um, everybody's job function in the company basically changed to like, you know, assisting with, um, you know, almost like tech tasks, like even just things that you would, you know, we would almost consider to be like remedial, you know? Um, yeah. And we were able to pay everybody through the entire part. And then we, we restarted it. It jumped back right back to where it was. Well, let me ask you this. You can disagree, by the way, if you don't even agree with the, the setup principle. But what, I, what I've observed is it seems like if you don't have that healthy paranoia, that sense of urgency, you can comp become complacent. Danger yeah. can sneak up on you, and you can fail from not really paying attention, falling asleep at the wheel, right? But I, I would see on the other end of the spectrum, if we don't know how to have a healthy relationship to that paranoia, you could have the burnout. You could have the decisions that were rash or out of stress, or even just your body starts to shut down because you're in a fight yeah. or flight mode all the time. How do you personally avoid from going to that end of the spectrum where the constant state of paranoia 
is actually negatively affecting you? Yeah. So I would say, you know, from like 2016 until like basically, I guess that was like 2020 when, when COVID hit, I did not, um, I did not take good care of that, that perspective. Right. I lived in that constant state of paranoia. I traveled nonstop. I neglected my personal health, my sleep, um, everything, because it was, you know, it was this like thing in the back of my mind where like, you know, I had to go, right. Like I just, I gotta go, I gotta go get this thing done. I got, and you know, I have three kids. Um, I missed, you know, tons of school events and, you know, dance recitals and all sorts of things because I had the company to attend to. Sure. And, you know, I've always had this firm belief that if I'm going to hire somebody and give them a job, I'm not just, you know, agreeing to pay them, you know, this salary. I'm basically saying to you, hey, look, I'm going to give you job security. You know, I'm going to ensure that our company is going to be profitable. It's going to be successful. So that way your job will continue. I will not hire somebody if I'm not confident that the company can afford to pay for them um, and, and take on that extra, you know, burden. And so, you know, I always worked to this, you know, uh, nonstop degree, but at once, once the pandemic hit and everything kind of got to slow down a little bit, for me, it was more of an eye opener where I realized how much I had been missing out on. I realized how much I had neglected my health and my sleep. And then I made that a priority in my life. And, you know, so for me, and it's actually been a, a huge benefit. So, you know, I rearranged my schedule and I, I worked on like how I'm managing my time. So, you know, now I make sure that I get up, you know, at, you know, uh, 5.30 in the mornings on Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays. And I work out, you know, um, in the morning before anything starts, you know, um, I, I looked at, you know, what, how much I was traveling and, and said, okay, you know, I need to be able to trust in my team in order to take on some of these things. So I don't have to do as much. Um, uh, you know, we, we've basically moved around some people within the company in order to take on some of that burden. So that way I can be at the best level that I need to be at. So that way I can still focus on the, the bigger things that need to come. And I can still focus on driving more business, but I don't need to run myself into the ground. And, you know, um, I, uh, my wife actually is the one that told me about this, but I, I love the saying, which is, you know, everybody talks about like work-life balance and there is no such thing as work-life balance. It's a, a work-life satisfaction is what you have to have because there are times in your life where you have to dedicate more time to your personal life than you do to work. And there are times where you have to dedicate more time to work than you can to to life. And that could be because you have a rush of business or you have you know, some emergency at work you have to deal with or some emergency in your personal life that you have to deal with. And as long as you're satisfied you know, in that time period, in that moment with like, hey, I'm okay with putting in this extra work at work because- I know it's important and I know I need to do it. And while at the same time, you might have to be okay with, hey, well, I'm okay with, you know, putting that email off until tomorrow, because I know that I have to take care of this th thing in my personal life, because that mental health, that mental well-being, your personal and physical health, um, uh, all matters. And if it's not all in sync, you know, you're going to be doing yourself a disservice over time. Man, that was so well said. And it's, I was assuming you know, talking to you, I can tell you, you seem like a healthy person that you must have made some adjustments at some point where you, you can't run on adrenaline forever. And the way that we talk about it, uh, I learned this from Jim Lair and Tony Schwartz, who, who really focus on what they call energy management more than time management is seeing it as a basic in and out, meaning uh, they call it balancing the energy equation. If I'm going to spend this much energy, at some point I have to recoup that energy, or at some point I start going into debt. And just like debt, you can get away with it for a period of time, but then at some point it comes calling and it's a nervous breakdown or it's 
your physical health breaks down or your oh, yeah. relationships fall apart and you're like, crap, I, I played that debt ratio too long. And that was a wake up call for me. You know, I, same thing, early years of my business starting, rightfully so to some degree, it was mostly on my mind all the time. And I was just full focus. But at some point I was like, dude, I am physically not doing good. You know, feeling overweight, feeling tired all the time. Anxiety started yeah. creeping up more and more and more. Even had a few panic attacks and things. I'm like, this is this is a diminishing return at best on yeah. me yeah. stressing about this, right? Well, you know, you know, it's. Uh, I mean, I I dealt with the exact same thing, and you know, um, uh, I you know, I think that the pandemic was the greatest greatest reset for me ever, just because I was able to take this time and say, okay, well, I'm going to focus on myself. You know, like we we don't have as much going on, so I can you know. Not that I could relax because there was no relaxing during that time period because you're constantly just spending money without having anything come in. You're, you know, you're watching everything. But like, you know, if I didn't have exercise and eating well during that time, then um, I would have been much worse off. And you know, I know now, you know, how much I had neglected that. But like, look, I have more energy now to do the tasks that I need to do. My mental clarity is even better. You know, um, so you know, I I think for all people, it's like you know, you have to, the entire thing matters, right? Like if your life is a mess, your health is a mess, your work's going to be a mess too, you know, and you, you have to have all of that stuff together and maybe your work will be fine, but eventually this is going to catch up. Right. And um, so you have to take care of it all. I'm a big believer that in that now. And I think, you know, it's like, you know, we even have, I have, I have some employees that, you know, will put in like exceptionally long hours and I appreciate their hard work. But every once in a while, I have to tell them like, hey, look, turn the computer off. Stop. Like, it's, you know, it's just too late. Like, you just got to have to, some of this is going to have to go till tomorrow because there's just no way you're going to burn out, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, we all sort of, I think, have faced that burnout at some point. And it, the worst thing that can happen is if you're burning out as the entrepreneur that started it, right? Like, then what happens to the company, right? So yeah, who's, who's, at the, who's leading the ship if yeah. you're down, right? Uh, man, you know, I can't remember who said it. I probably need to. I should have this attributed quote already uh, figured out. But years ago, it was like 10 years ago, I remember somebody said they predicted that in the future, which we're here now, athletes would start acting like CEOs and CEOs would start acting like athletes. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing that. You're seeing yeah. LeBron James, you know, start to think smart about how to, you know, I'm making a lot of money. I should probably think beyond basketball. Like I need to think like a CEO and build a brand. But now you're starting to see, CEOs or just leaders, entrepreneurs go, Hey, I need to remember to think also like an athlete, like train my body, train my mind, those kinds of things. And what you're talking about is there is such a thing as overtraining, right? Like I think in business, we always think more is better, but there is such a thing as overtraining where you run too hard. Like I ran too uh, about a month ago. I, I've been typically just in the gym, but I'd missing, I was missing running. I was missing the mental part uh, or, or like, clarity I get when I went running. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to go running. And I ran too far. I'd been off running too long and I just, I was loving it in the moment. I was enjoying it. I just kept going, kept going, kept going. I got plantar fasciitis. I didn't even know what that was. <laughs> I got it. And it was two months of me having constant foot pain. And I, it was just such a reminder, like, even though I was enjoying it in the moment, I overtrained and then I incurred an injury and you're, the people on your team can do the same thing, but I'm enjoying it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm liking this. Yeah. But if you're, if you're running at that pace all the time, you're going to incur an injury at some point. Right. 
Yeah, no doubt. I mean, like, um, I, uh, I just ran a half marathon last, last, uh, I guess it was December, uh, November, December. And, um, and, uh, during that training for it, like there was definitely some times where like, I was like, oh, I went out too far. Like I've, you know what I mean? Like, like I'm not gonna be able to make it back. Like I went, I thought I could do it, but I just wasn't there yet. Um, so yeah. I get that hundred percent. You know. Absolutely. Yeah. I was wondering for my sister, she's 47 and is doing Ironmans and just did her first marathon wow. and she's unbelievable. But I was asking her, we just spent vacation together, our families. And that was what she was talking about. I, I didn't realize there was so much strategy is what she said. I didn't realize there was so much strategy and actually how to train efficiently that it yeah. was not just go put my shoes on and have as hard of a workout as I can. And again, it's like, where does that apply? I think it's just worthwhile for us to say, where does that apply in business? That it's not just going a hundred miles an hour. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you say that because like one of the big things that I've been stressing to everybody in my company over the last like six months is plan, 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 right? Um, like we're, we're, um, embarking on this whole new, um, tech development that we're doing for our company, basically like taking all of our technologies and sort of, uh, putting them into one platform, but also with the idea that eventually we'll get to a self-service side of this, right? Like we're a completely managed service where, um, and which is great for our clients, but like in order for us to expand to the masses and make this available to anybody and everybody, eventually we have to get to a self-service position and, you know, so the idea of going and like, if you've ever done any tech development, it can literally just be uh, a black hole where you just dump money. Right. Like, right. and you know, nothing, like sometimes nothing comes of it. It's like, you might go six months in, you're like, I don't know, like, do I have anything? And like, um, and so I said, look, I need a plan a, a very, very strategic plan. And then we started looking at other things and it was like, you know, we, we, we used to have, we still have the office in downtown Durham. We have this, you know, um, really nice office, um, and because of the pandemic, we went all remote and then we found out we could be successful in a remote environment. Um, and so we switched it where we let all of our employees, you know, work remote now, like I'm working from home right now. And um, we don't really use our office except for like training. And that's about it right now. Um, but one of the things that we, you know, had trouble with was how do you still make it so that way everybody has a voice in the decision making that's going on, right? Like if, you know, this person over here in, in, in role C, you know, would have input on that thing. And normally in an office environment, they would know that you were creating that or doing that. And they might, you know, speak up and, you know, somehow you'd have a conversation about it in a remote environment. You have to specifically let that person know that you're doing this thing because they don't just hear about it in, in passing our conversation, you know? And so, you know, it's like, well, how do you make it so that way planning solves that? And you really can through, um, basically being able to write out a plan and you can distribute that plan to everybody, you know, in your team, your office, whatever, and then let them give feedback on it, which then makes them also feel like they have a, a voice in it. But for us, it's all about plan, 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 and plan, because you can't take any tech development. You can't really go anywhere, um, in an efficient manner without a really good plan. I love that. And I want to make space for this right now. Cause I told you at the beginning, before we started recording that one of the questions I was going to ask you is what are you currently passionate about that you believe would accelerate someone's business or their life? We've talked yeah. a little bit of, you know, one accelerating your life on the, the health side, the recovery side. Now we're talking about planning. Would you do, is there something else that comes to mind or would you go deeper in one of those right now is what you're really feeling? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, I think like for me, the biggest thing has been, um, uh, sleep has made a huge difference in my life. Um, besides just like the working out and all that sort of stuff. But like, I used to always, I'd fuel off of, you know, three, four hours of sleep a night, you know? 
Um, cause I was, you know, very much more a night owl where like, I would just stay up on my computer working, you know, just looking at different things. I read tons of, of, of articles, um, across a myriad of different sites and a lot of industry publications in various industries, not even things that are relevant to like marketing and advertising, just in what other industries are doing. I don't care if it's like a plumbing, you know, trade magazine, I'll read it because typically you'll stumble upon ideas in there of like how you could help them solve a problem. A lot of the times what you're hearing in those industry trades is, is problems. And so for me, it's about sleep and read more um, because that fuels ideas that sort of come out. Um, but yeah, I mean, you have to just pay attention to your health and wellness. I think anything health and wellness related, eating well, eating right, sleeping more, um, those things are going to make a huge difference in accelerating your business. Yeah. And then, you know, I think, uh, the communicate more, you know, that's, that's a big thing too. Well, let's dive into sleep. This has been a learning curve for me. And it's also probably, like you said, it's where I've seen as a performance coach, where I've seen some of the most early and dramatic results for people you, that you wouldn't think. So years ago, when I was diving into this for my business and for myself, I have a friend in neuroscience and I said, man, it, I, when we're taking care of the physical body, it seems like there's food, there's fitness, there's sleep. And there's some version of active recovery, right? Mm -hmm. And I said, out of those four, how would you rank them in importance? And he said, number one is sleep. And then there's everything else. And he's like, I'm not saying the other three aren't important. He said, but the sleep stands out. Like there's number one is sleep and then there's everything else. Yeah. And so I was like, man, that's probably what I have ranked last right now. It's the thing I think I can get the most away with and I don't need that much. And then I remember hearing, uh, Elon Musk recently, maybe in the last year, talk, someone asked him how much he was sleeping. And he said, I used to get three or four hours a night and thought that that was good. But in, in true Elon Musk fashion, he said, but then I ran the data and realized it was suboptimal. <laughs> said, what do you mean by that? And he said, whatever productivity I thought I was gaining and staying up later, I was losing the next day in mistakes I was making and in slower processing. Like I wasn't computing as fast as I as I normally would on problem solving. And I was like, wow, well, that's such an interesting way of thinking about it. Whatever productivity I thought I was gaining, I was actually losing yeah. the next day and mistakes made or just slower cognition, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was, it was definitely about like, you know, I thought more time in the day, less time sleeping, you know, like I just, it's hard when you're working so much, right? Like, and I'm sure a lot of people tend to do this. This is what I did was, you know, I was working so many hours that then I would use like those nighttime late hours to decompress. Like, whereas like, you know, that was the time where I, I could actually just relax for, you know, a couple hours and maybe I would just, you know, tune my brain out on something mindless, but you know, that, I, that time would have been better just decompressing, you know, by sleeping, or I should have really just realized, Hey, you're just putting in just a little too many hours. Maybe, you know, maybe we cut down how many nights we do that to three, you know what I mean? Or like we see if we can, you know, go to sleep earlier, wake up earlier and then put in the work one, you'll be more efficient anyways. Um, you know, and I just didn't think through those things at the time until I really, when I started working out with a trainer, um, you know, it, the thing that he stressed to me all the time was you have to be sleeping. Like your body will not recover. You will not get in better shape unless you sleep. And, um, so I started looking more at like, okay, I got to get my sleep schedule back on, you know, that part was mind blowing to me too. Like if we can just geek out and sleep for a second. Yeah. I mean, again, when I was learning, I went, I got down a rabbit hole for like a year on like, what are the impacts of this? I didn't realize how much it had to do with weight loss and muscle gain. So we are just looking at that. Oh yeah. Like, Huge. Just, just the imp impact it has on muscle gain and on weight loss 
has a huge component of how much sleep you're getting. Like there was this guy who was a former bodybuilding champion or whatever, and they asked him, what do you, if you could go back and do it all over again, what would you do differently? And he said, I would have worked out less and I would have slept more. What? And he was like, I just thought like working out twice a day, seven days a week was the way. And he's like, now knowing what I know, I would have worked out less. I still would have worked out a lot, but I would have worked out less and I would have slept more. For sure. I was like, that is so crazy. Right. So just yeah. that is yeah, it's hard to believe sometimes, you know, um, the other, I mean, obviously like, I mean, we could talk about health and wellness and fitness and all that forever. Um, I would just, I would just give you this last point, which is you have to be, a, you have to pay attention to what you're putting in your body. Right. Um, you know, uh, food and what you eat matters. It, it's going to give you the energy for the day. You know, like I, I still am, uh, you know, like you can probably see it as I'm drinking these. I mean, I, I can't kick this habit. I mean, I, I still drink too much caffeine. Um, but, uh, eventually I'll get there. You know what I mean? It's like one thing at a time. No, it's exactly what it is. It is actually one thing at a time. Like we have to start to go, what's the next most meaningful thing that I feel motivated to change? Is it yeah. sleep? And even there, when I was talking to my friend, I said, man, it's sleep. All right. If that's number one, I'm not going to bed till like midnight. You know, same, same as you, by the way, it felt like I was trying to just grab a few hours to like breathe. And I, so I was like, no, I just need more time. And he, cause work and then kids and then kids bedtime and then time with my wife. And it was like, I haven't had a second to freaking breathe. One, I realized I needed to be making more changes in the day that if my end of day felt that way, I needed to find some things in the day to do differently. So I didn't feel that way at night. But then two, I said, well, how do I change? And he said, don't try to go from going to bed at midnight to then going to bed at nine. He's like, you will not, you will not stick to that. He said, can you back it up 30 minutes? And then two weeks later or a month later, back it up 30 minutes and slowly like work your way down to where you want to be. And it just overall felt like a better approach to goals in terms of at least like physical health and habits and things. It's like, we go to this, we go straight to optimal. I'd be going to bed at nine. I'd be waking up at six and working out. I'd be doing my meditations. It's like, you're not going to do all that. You can't change all that at once, no. but you could start somewhere. Yeah. Work there. And then, like you said, for now, I'm still doing energy drinks. All right. Mm -hmm eventually that'll make it on the list of looking at that as just like I looked at everything else and saying, all right, what's a replacement? How do I get energy elsewhere? But for now it's going to stay. Right. Awesome. Um, man, any of the last thoughts on just on this recovery piece that you are, what's not going to go away is the stress. What's not going to go away is the demand on you to shoulder responsibility to solve problems. So how do you think about the long run? Other things beyond just sleeping better and eating better. Is it team? Is it delegation? Is it advisors? Like what else can help you shoulder some of that responsibility and pressure in the future? I think it's trusting in your team, right? So you hired someone for a specific reason. You believed them in them in that moment. And, you know, unless they've done something to show you that you can't, you know, trust or believe in them, then you need to trust and believe in them. And you know, you know, you, you can hear it everywhere and anywhere, but I mean, it is so true that you sometimes learn more through failure than you do through success. And so, you know, you can't shoulder everything. You have to be willing to kind of turn some of that stuff over and, and let the cards fall where they may. Now, you know, um, you can oversee it, you can give input and all that. Um, but you don't necessarily need to shoulder all that burden all the time. And if you trust in your team members, um, you know, you should be able to kind of relinquish some of that. Uh, if you can't, then, you know, you're not hiring the right people. Yeah. Yeah. I always look at it like, is it, is it a them issue or a me issue in this case? 
Yeah. Sometimes it's realizing I don't trust them. And the reason why is I didn't hire the right person. Yeah. And other times I'm like, ah, it's a, they're fine. It's me. I'm just, I'm struggling internally with the fear, the fear of handing this over, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. something I just got to unkink. Yeah. I mean, for me, like, um, so I had turned over, you know, so many duties over the last, you know, four or five years. Um, uh, the only one that I struggled to let go of was sales because I knew that that's the lifeblood of how the company succeeds and moves forward. So like to relinquish that was the hardest thing for me. And it's, you know, it's something that, you know, uh, I'm still involved with for sure, but now I have, you know, more people that are working on it that are doing their own things that I can, you know, support. I trust them to go and do what they need to do. Um, you know, and, and I think that we'll be more successful over time because of that, because I can't be in a, you know, a million and one places, right. I, I can't field every single, um, sales call, you know, I have other duties, you know, to, to fulfill. And, um, so like, you know, it almost became a hindrance where like I was slowing up the process because then sales calls needed to fit into my schedule, which, you know, was already crazy. So, um, you know, uh, I think relinquishing some of that, you know, it gives you more ability to do the things that you need to do. And sometimes you just got to let it go and, and just give it a shot. I mean, you know, worst case scenario, you know, the person falls flat and, you know, you, uh, you pick up behind them, you know what I mean? And they learn something from it and, um, and then you can teach them something from it. Wow, man. I was, it makes me think of, uh, uh this last week when I was on vacation. So one, I was talking to one of my sisters and I was talking to her husband about his job. He's, he's, um, a major executive at a giant fast food restaurant chain. And so he's over the entire technology department of this giant fast food restaurant chain. I said, man, how's your job changed? Like, what do you see as your most important thing now versus what it was when you were just the director or one of the people on the team? And he said, man, it was the hardest transition. My main job now is not doing the work. My main job now is meeting with the people doing the work. Yeah, right. And I was like, man, that is a really good way of thinking about it. And he's like, I'm not actually building the app. I'm not actually doing the things that I'm really good at. I am now making sure that I'm open and available and leading the people that are doing those projects. And that's the most valuable use of my time. And it sounds similar mm-hmm. to yours. Like, I can't be like... Yeah. You can't just be doing all the direct sales anymore. I got to be leading yeah. people doing the sales or, you know, all of those things. It's so crazy. Like I always tell people like when they, when they come on, I'm like, well, I've done your job before. You know what I mean? Like I was the only person, right? So like I did your job. I know what your job entails. And I used to be able to say that. And I still say it to a certain extent, but like now some of their jobs have become, you know, so much more complicated. There's so much more that goes into it that like, I don't think I could even step into that role now without like significant training to go back and do that particular thing. Now sales is different, but like some of the other stuff that that our company does, like I would have to have someone that would have to give me like three days of training for me to like get up to speed on like how that, how to run this through that particular system or something, because it's not, it's not what it used to be. Right. Like, I mean, it's just, it's become so much bigger, but um, you know, it's hard sometimes to feel like, you know, you don't have control over those those things or that you're not doing that individual thing anymore. You know, relinquishing that control, you know, is, is always hard, but, um, you know, if you want to grow, you have to do it. I mean, you absolutely have to. I think we overlook, we overlook the emotional component of it. We know it strategically, but we don't own that. Hey, this is emotionally difficult. And until we can know that, then we can't overcome it, you know? 
I mean, there's so many, there's so many founders I've worked with where I'm like, what is the real issue? Like, it, it just scares me. Okay, well, let's just talk about that. Like, it's not actually around the skill of it. It's not even around the person sometimes. It's just saying like, for a long time, I felt comfortable because I was in charge of this and it's the lifeblood of my organization. And I'm going to have to overcome the fear of letting that go. And sometimes it's all at once, but sometimes it's, it's progressional. You yeah. back up a little bit, you bring someone in, you, you give them some and you keep, they keep earning more of your trust, you know, to step away more and more. Uh, but I think it's helpful for even people listening to go, Hey, maybe that's what I'm struggling with. It's, it's, it's actually the more of the emotional component of trusting someone with the a really critical part of my business. So I appreciate you sharing that. All right. I want to be cognizant of your time. Uh, sure. So let's dive into the lightning round questions. Okay. And just first thought that comes to mind. You can elaborate if you want, but no need to. Uh, question number one, what is one message that you would like to ingrain into your entire organization? To communicate better and, and put planning first that, um, that there is no one person that makes any part of this operation work, that it literally takes everybody. And, um, that every win we get as a company is as a company, not one individual. And every loss that we take as a company is a collective loss. It is a collective error. I look at, you know, errors are not necessarily the fault of one. They are the fault of many, you know, and wins are not the result of one. They are the result of many. You couldn't yeah. be where you are and do what you do without all the people that came before you. So, um, you know, that is the most important thing for anybody to understand. Love it. All right. Question number two. What is the single best advice you've gotten about growing your business? And also what was the worst advice? Um, so I don't know if they're really sort of tailors right to like growing, uh, growing your business, but my grandfather um, told me for years, no matter what you were going to do that you needed to look forward to it. Right. Um, so if you had a sales call before that sales call, you better be looking forward to that sales call. Um, if, you know, no matter what you were doing, if you looked forward to it, that it put you into this sort of state of mind that would make you, you know, more successful in that, in that thing. And, um, I, I think about that all the time and anything I do that, you know, like if I'm going to go to this event, you know, I'm looking forward to the event. And even if I don't really want to do it, I will sit there and tell myself, you know, look forward to the event. It's going to be fun. Like you're going to do great. Like you have to look forward to the thing that you're going to do. And you can, you can extrapolate that into anything that like, Hey, you know, I'm looking forward to us embarking on this new tech development that we're going to, you know, do for the next year. Right. Looking forward to it puts you in a positive state of mind um, and, and positivity, you know, uh, it works. That's um, good. Well done, yeah. grandpa. How about <laughs> yeah, that? Right? How about the worst advice? It could be either given to you personally or just stuff you hear traded around that you disagree with. Um, so I would say the worst advice that could be ever given to anybody is to tell them not to do it or that they need to, you know, change this thing or whatever. And it's not to say that the, that, that the person may or may not have some experience. And sometimes you can, you know, potentially listen to parts of it, but if someone's telling you not to do something, not to, not to try it, not to just, you know, go for it. That's the worst thing because, you know, I, I mean, we all have them. Like I have tons, I have friends that are always talking about like, you know, I'd love to start this business or have this great idea, but they never do anything about it. Yeah. And, you know, um, execution is key. If you're great at execution, then you'll be a great entrepreneur. You'll be a great business leader because if you can actually do and try and be willing to fail, then you're going to beat everybody because I'd say at least probably 75% of the people that are out there that have ideas don't ever do anything with that idea. They just sit on it. I mean, you know, like 
so don't listen to anybody that tells you not to do something or not to try something or that you can't be successful at it. Just try and do, um, you know, uh, the worst thing that can happen is that you fail and then you try again. Absolutely. Man, I, this is something I'm having to learn. I've had to learn over the years, still have to apply it, but I'm learning to be more afraid of being haunted than being hurt. And what I mean by that is like, I want to, I want to be more scared of being haunted by things I didn't try that I didn't step into than be, by being hurt because I tried something and it hurt me, you know, like it, it failed, but typically we're more afraid of being hurt. We're like, but, but man, the pain it would be if I did that and no one responded to it Man, it's way worse looking back going shit. But what if it worked? Yeah. But what if it was that rattling around in your brain your whole life? I always tell people set a number because like far too often, like I think one of the things that holds so many people back from like starting a business or trying is they're afraid that like, oh, I'm going to lose a bunch of money, right? Like, or I'm going to try this thing and I don't, you know, you have to set a number, right? Um, the first company that I started, I said, okay, I'm going to put $10,000 into this and I give myself 90 days. And if I can make that $10,000 to increase by at least another thousand, right? So if I can make 11, if I can turn 10,000 into 11,000 within 90 days, then I'll keep doing that thing. If I don't make it, then I'll shut it down and I'll go get a regular job, right? Like, so um, I think you have to set a number and say, hey, I'm willing to try it for this and try it. And like, look, if you don't make it, you don't make it, try something else, you know, and then set a number for that thing. Um, don't, don't just spend money into oblivion because you think the thing's going to work. Um, but set a number, be, be thoughtful about it. So that way you don't get yourself into a bad position. Um, and I would always tell my, I'd say my, the biggest piece of advice that anybody should ever give anyone about business is don't ever leverage your home. Don't ever take out a loan against your home for a business that you run. Um, because you don't want to ever be having to think about a business decision that may then affect where you can sleep at night. God, that's so big. And I, we had to d did a similar thing with my wife and I, I called it the parachute clause where early on I went from a stable, you know, salary job to starting my own thing. And it was six months. I would say every six months for at least the first two years, because in my mind, the first two years were going to tell us, you know, whether these, this was going to work and not just the business, but me as an entrepreneur, but we broke it up into six months. Every six months we're going to check in. I'm going to ask you, is it still worth it? Is it still worth it? Like, do you see the signs? Do I see the signs that this is the life we want? And I give you the right to pull the rip cord on the parachute and tell me, Hey, I want you to go get a more secure job for a time. And sure. that was helpful. Like it was helpful in yeah. my mind to know every six months, but also to give ourselves six months to see something with not asking that question, yeah. not second guessing, like, no, go hard for six months and then pick your head up and say, are we seeing enough evidence that we want to keep moving forward? You know, yep. That's uh, smart. That, that helped us as well. So we weren't fighting all the time about it. We weren't constantly, no. should we do this? Should we not? It's like, Hey, we're talking about it in March. Yeah. You know, and right now it's not March. So let's just keep doing it. You know? And I think for, you know, for most people, like even for me, like, um, you know, you're, if you're starting your first business, like for the people that haven't, that are out there that haven't even started something yet, or they're thinking about starting something, there's nothing that says that you have to quit your current job in order to start that thing that you're thinking about. Um, you know, just start it, start doing it, do it on the side, do it at night, do it on the weekends. You know, um, you know, there's more time out there than people believe or understand. You know, so much time is wasted watching television and, you know, just doing nothing, um, you know, and, you know, those hours could be the difference that makes between the business that you could have started and the business that you didn't start. Absolutely. All right. Question number three. I think we've covered this a little bit, but we talked about or question number three is what currently causes you the most stress or worry leading your business? We got your unique insight on kind of leaning into to the, yeah. bit of the paranoia, but in specific, like right now, what 
what does your mind go to when it is being paranoid? Um, for me, it's all about, you know, lead generation um, and, uh, you know, sort of like, I don't know what the word, oh, I'm trying to think of what the word for that would be, but like, basically you don't want, like, you can't be out there all this, all this, all the time, basically saying the same things, right? Your message will get fatigued, right? So um, I think, you know, for me, it's this sort of need to always be creating the next thing, you know? Um, I'm always looking for like, hey, what's the next thing that we're going to integrate into? What's the next big, you know, technology piece that we're going to push out, all that. And, you know, sometimes you can get ahead of yourself. Um, you know, you as as a as a as a business that looking to grow, you have to focus and sell the cars that are on the lot, right? Like this is what I do, this is what I have available. Sell the cars that are on the lot. Like if it's not on the lot, then don't sell it. But at the same time, you have to be thinking of, uh, you know, down the road, like, hey, you know, this year's model is going to get tired and people aren't going to be as intrigued by that anymore. So what's next year's model? And so that definitely stresses me out. But it's like about finding that balance there where it's like, okay, keep everybody in the team focused on selling the cars on the lot. Well, then I can be over here dreaming about, you know, what's the next thing and working with my, you know, development team on, on getting that next thing out. Um, and, you know, I always worry that we're not going to be fast enough, right? Like you start developing today, you know, a project might take you a year and a half, two years. By the time you get there, you don't know what other people are developing. Maybe they develop the same thing before you do. So there's always risk involved in that. But if you're not trying, then you're dying, right? Like I always tell people, like, I don't want to be on the bleeding edge. I want to be on the leading edge. And, you know, if we're not pushing the envelope, then we're literally just letting ourselves die off slowly over time. And we didn't start this company to just be picked off by our own sort of, you know, uh, laziness, right? Like I want to push it forward at all times. Uh, I love that. All right. Final question. This is kind of a fun, creative question for you. So if you could hop into a DeLorean and you yeah. get to go back to your past, we're not there to change anything necessarily, but you do get to deliver a message to the younger version of you. When would you go back? And what would you pass along? What message would you pass along to the younger version of yourself? Um, I mean, I can think of one really specific story that I could tell you that um, is kind of crazy, but uh, um, in which case I would totally alter that because it would have changed my entire existence. But, um, uh, you know, if it was just generally, I would say, um, you know, to slow down. Uh, so I, you know, I graduated high school early. I graduated college early. Um, I, you know, I, you know, I graduated college when I was, uh, 20 years old, graduated law school when I was 23, I rushed through that period of my life. Um, and I was such in a rush to like, you know, get a job and like, you know, and, and go out there and, and, and do, um, I grew up extraordinarily poor, um, as a kid and, you know, saw my parents sort of work our way out of that. And so it kind of like put this thing on me where it was like, you know, I, I need to, I need to like go, go, go in order to survive. And, and, you know, like, you know, I need to make sure that I never have to endure that, you know? Um, and so if I could have told myself to slow down at some point and enjoy the years a little bit more, um, you know, it, I think it would have been probably worthwhile to a certain extent, but I also wouldn't be the person I am today. So I don't know. Um, and then I'll just, I'll tell you this other thing, which is, so I used to work in the music industry, um, before I went to law school, um, I worked for Transcontinental Records in Orlando, Florida, which did all like the boy bands like NSYNC, O-Town, LFO, all that, all that stuff. And um, uh, we were in a meeting once and everyone was like, you know, talking about like how, 
you know, the, the music industry was changing at the time, you know, Napster had come out and like people weren't buying albums anymore, or whatever. And my state, my space was really big and people started putting these like players on their MySpace, like a, like a radio player. And you could upload your own music and someone could go to your MySpace page and they could play your music. And it became a controversy for a little bit because it was like, okay, well, you know, anybody could upload anybody's music. How is anybody going to get paid off of this? It's just the same thing as Napster. Right. And so I went to the leadership and I was like, you know, what we should do is we should launch our own music player and we should put ads in between each of the streams, you know, so that way as people listen to music, then they listen to an ad and then we'll use the advertising revenue to pay the royalties on the music. It'll be, you know, it'll, it'll solve all the problems. And they told me that'll never work. Um, they're, like, they're like, that would never work. Nobody's going to do that, you know? And then, you know, fast forward many Man, years and yeah. So if I could tell myself that at that moment, I would have gone and built that thing. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know anything about it, but I just, I knew that the MySpace player thing, I was like, man, this is so genius. Like if you could just go and, cause you would just search through people's MySpace pages and you would spend all day searching through and you'd find different songs and you would listen to them on MySpace pages. I was like, somebody should just create a player for all this. And then like, you know, you just have ads. Like it would be so easy. Yeah. Wow. Oh man. Well, that's why we typically don't say go back and change things. Cause you can be like crap. Yeah. Right. You know? But like you said, all the things that happened led you to where today. What I find useful about that exercise is often the thing we, the advice we'd pass along to our, our past self is advice. We actually probably need to hear again today and we can move forward going, Hey, where am I still rushing? You know, where am I still trying to blitz through life and I'm missing what's happening right now. Um, so it kind of emerges like some deeper wisdom in us. So I think I appreciate you, you, you playing the game with me. This has been awesome. Thank you so much for making time, sharing your story sharing your wisdom and your heart with us. It has been truly valuable. I've learned a ton and uh, it's been an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you. It was great being here. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.